Epps Holloway Deloach and Hopkemeyer offers a wider range of estate planning services, including planning for loved ones with special needs or disabilities when we are no longer there to organize and advocate on their behalf. Parents of children with special needs must make careful estate planning choices to coordinate all of the legal, financial, and special care needs of their children, both now and in the future. For many parents, a special needs trust is the most effective way to help their child with a disability. If you have a child with special needs, a special needs trust is a critical component of your estate plan. The attorneys at Epps Holloway, Deloach, and Hopkemeyer provide assistance to families in addressing these and other unique concerns in their estate plans. For more information, visit ehdhlaw.com. This episode of Classic City Crime starts right now. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to Classic City Crime. I'm Cameron J. And as always, I want to begin by saying thank you for always welcoming me into your homes each week or your car, whichever way you listen, and into your lives as we continue to learn more about the crimes that occurred right here in Athens. Over the last few weeks, we've been learning a lot about the Classic City in 1987. We've heard talk of a lively music scene that produced some of the world's most famous artists, but we've also heard of the horrors cities across the country face every single day, of crime, more specifically, murder. We also now know what really happened to the Suttons on Oglethorpe Avenue and the women of Cars Hill. We know how investigators searched diligently for answers after that first murder took place, and we now know that Officer Kurt Graham was the guy who quickly located the missing car from the Cars Hill murder scene. He also located the person driving it, 15-turned-16-year-old Clinton Bankston. An interesting point I want to throw in here is that many officers agree had they not found this car, they would not have found Clinton. But before we go there, before we talk more about Clinton's arrest, questioning, and the subsequent sentencing, and the questions surrounding all of that, I want to first address some of your questions that were sent in just this week. I'm going to only address a few right now because the rest really get answered by this episode and in the episodes to come. Alright, so the first question asks about the murders at Cars Hill, and it asks who was the first person killed, and what was the sequence of events? Well, upon getting this question, I caught up with W.J. Smith by text, and he let me know that they believed that Sally and Helen were killed early the morning of August 15th, as young Helen was consuming breakfast when she was attacked and Sally was still in bed. It is believed by W.J. that Clinton encountered Ann or Morris as she arrived at the home and as he was coming out of the house. Former DA Detective Scott Berry confirmed this version of events, but he added a really interesting point here. He said that he imagined it being like a scene out of Braveheart for Miss Morris. What he meant by that? Well, that Ann or Morris likely saw her killer coming toward her covered in blood, yielding that hatchet, unable to get away. Another listener wanted to know if any physical evidence was recovered from the crime scene at Cars Hill. The answer, simply put, is yes. You know, we mentioned last week that there was a pair of underwear that was found in the home that belonged to a man, and those did belong to Clinton Bankston. You're also going to hear later in this episode about a few other items which were discarded and later found. The next listener has a really good question asking how long between the discovery of the bodies at Cars Hill by authorities and the finding of that car. Well, investigators will tell you that they got very, very lucky when it came to answers as to what happened at Cars Hill. The murders of the three women occurred on August 15th, and get this, by 7.26 a.m. the next morning, the officer encountered the car. Clinton Bankston's grandmother would later attest to seeing him leave home that morning at 5 a.m., never to return until he came back with that car. Speaking of the car, that's where I want to pick back up this week. Officer Graham had now encountered Clinton Bankston with the missing car belonging to Sally Nathanson. Detectives soon descended on the scene, something Detective W.J. Smith remembers very distinctly. We go over there, and there, there's a kid there. Kurt's got him outside talking to him. I believe he had him sitting on the 
uh, with the door open sitting on the back of the back seat of the car. Mm-hmm. Cops begin to show up. The chief shows up. Everett Price shows up. Uh, other folks show up. And I, I said, let's get this. We, we need to get out of here. We don't need to be trying this case or investigating this case in, in front of the entire community. Right. So we go to the PD, start talking to him. And Does he confess? Yeah. Uh, he he talks about it was a it was a confession in the third person. What a confession in third person! What could that possibly mean? And I'm going to admit right now that when I first heard it and when I first read it, I was shocked too. And I'm going to explain, and you're going to learn in just a moment what that means: confessing in third person. But first, let's talk about what Clinton does say in the transcript that I've read of his interview with police from August of 1987. Having been read his rights by police and having signed a waiver to not have a lawyer present, the 16-year-old Bankston says the following things about what happened at Cars Hill. When asked how he started his night on the evening of the murders, Bankston says, quote, I first went up to Chris's house on my bike. Of course, investigators immediately ask Bankston, who is Chris? To which the young teen responds, Chris, Ward, W-A-R-D. Bankston continues, quote, and then me and him went. Then he got on his bike and then we drove up there to the house. First, we went down that dirt road and then went up there and then Chris had to go inside for us. He went to get somebody back. I didn't know who he was talking about. I thought he was playing something with his family or something. First, I thought it was his family. Then he went inside and stayed in there around about five minutes or less. And then after that, I went in there, and the curtains were shut. Then I pulled the curtains back, and that's when I saw the lady on the bed. Then I went, you know, to try to find Chris. And when I went in there, I saw him in there, and another girl. She was young. End quote. Now I'm going to jump in here and say Clinton is describing finding the bodies of Sally and Helen Nathanson, mother and daughter. Sally, of course, had that bedroom with the sliding glass windows that Clinton is talking about entering. When asked what Chris was doing when Clinton Bankston found him, the teen responded by describing the murder weapon Chris had. He described it as an axe sword. Bankston then says, quote, Then I asked what Chris was doing, and he said he was getting her back for what she had done to him. He acted like he already knew her, and I said I'm fixing to go. He, uh, the first house we did, I went along with him as getting the money, but I ain't killed nobody. I just moved the rugs and stuff because he said we can get rich like this. And he asked me, do I want to get rich with him? And I said, yes, end quote. So I don't know if you caught it, but what we've just heard here is Clinton admit to not only his reported presence at Cars Hill, but he also made reference to what happened at the Sutton residence. You'll recall that at that scene, plenty of blood-soaked rugs were moved and were found. We've also just learned what Clinton Bankston says was the motive for he and Chris to obtain money and cars. But he does say that his co-conspirator Chris might have been, quote, getting her back for what she had done to him, her being young Helen. More on that later. The question then becomes why the Suttons, why the Oglethorpe Avenue house, why Cars Hill? Some people have speculated that perhaps Bankston had done some work for the Suttons, and all investigators agree that that could be likely, but it was never confirmed. Other people also think that it might be because he knew the victims at Cars Hill. Well, investigators don't buy that either. You see, Clinton actually at one time lived with his mother just off of Oglethorpe Avenue, and he then moved not but five minutes away from the Cars Hill home. And I think that we should also think about this. Both the Cars Hill estate and the Sutton's estate on Oglethorpe Avenue were quite large in 1987. In fact, I'm going to admit, I could see why someone that's looking to steal might have targeted those homes specifically. What I cannot fathom, and what I hope we'll be able to piece together as we move through this, is why someone would need to commit such an act of violence to do so. Now, there's a lot of details within this 50 pages of interview and transcripts. He goes into deep detail about the brutal nature of the attacks against the three women the night before. He describes how he and Chris tried to steal the vehicles from Cars Hill, but were only successful in stealing the one he was in possession of. In the process of trying to steal those cars, Bankston says that Chris killed Ann or Morris because she arrived and, quote, saw their faces. 
He also says they stole around $70 from her purse before leaving the scene. Now, at this point in the interview, investigators begin to shift their focus with the young teen about his involvement with the Sutton murders on Oglethorpe Avenue. He once again says that he and Chris took their bikes to the home, and he does say here that Chris said he knew the Suttons because his dad had reportedly served in the military with Mr. Sutton. According to Bankston, Chris had a key to the home, which they used to gain entry. He says the two immediately encountered Dr. Rachel Sutton downstairs, and that she escaped from their grasp and began to call for her husband for help. He goes on to describe Chris brutally stabbing the retired university professor with a large knife, which we now know was a spear from within the Sutton's own home. Clinton Bankston reports that he alerted Chris that Dr. Glenn Sutton was coming down the stairs, but Chris assured him that Dr. Sutton could not move very fast so that he shouldn't worry. Once Dr. Sutton came down the stairs and reportedly asked the two men what they were doing and why they were doing it, Clinton Bankston says that Chris killed him too. Clinton ends by saying that he and Chris took some jewelry from the Sutton home and that Chris likely returned to the Sutton home in the days after they were killed to steal their cars, which we know was unsuccessful. Now I know this is a lot, and it's really only scratching the surface of this interview, and it would take me hours to go through all of it with you. But that's why we're soon going to be releasing a reading of the transcript where you can hear for yourself every word that was really said back in 1987 without just having to take my word for it. Now, I will tell you we tried to obtain the full interview audio by an open records request, but at the time of the request the ACCPD was experiencing a system outage and is currently unable to know at this time whether or not the tape still exists. We'll keep you updated on the progress we have on that. Bringing it back in here, the overarching theme we've learned so far, Clinton Bankston was just 15 years old at the time of the first murders on Oglethorpe Avenue. He was just 16 at the time of the second and knew every detail of both crimes. He knew the weapons that were used. He knew about every wound which was dealt to the victims. He knew about the timing of each event. He knew what items were missing and he was in possession of the missing car. He had left his fingerprints, which were eventually matched at the Oglethorpe Avenue scene, and that missing jewelry of the Suttons, well, they later recovered a watch in Clinton Bankston's home with the initials G.W.S. Glenn Wallace Sutton. As for the missing hatchet from the Cars Hill scene, well, it was eventually found by Detective Scott Berry in a spot on Oconee Street where it had been dumped along with some papers that were in the vehicle. But there's one thing that's consistent throughout this interview, and that is that Clinton Bankston at this time was maintaining that all of this was done while he simply watched committed at the hands of a Chris Ward. Did investigators ever find a Chris? Well, not a Chris Ward, and none matching Bankston's description. Detectives and psychiatrists eventually came to believe that Chris was simply a figment of Clinton's imagination, perhaps a sign of mental illness that we'll discuss later, or a troubled childhood, which did indeed happen. Clinton's father actually died in a house fire. An article written by our friend and Athens Banner Herald reporter Wayne Ford wrote at the time that police explored many leads regarding Chris and never came up with anything. Bankston would reportedly later tell police and psychiatrists that he did not exist. But you know, Chris was not just invented at the time of these murders for Bankston, it seems. In fact, he had been telling his mother about a guy named Chris for years. A detective Woodall interviewed Bankston's mother and wrote the following, quote, Miss Bankston stated that her son had been talking about Chris Ward since he was in middle school. He had told his mother that Chris had an uncle in Atlanta who owned a candy store and that his mother was dead. There were some conflicting reports about Chris going to school with her son and sometimes he told her he wasn't. The family was living at 540 Oglethorpe Avenue, side note, hear how close that would be to the Suttons, during this time. Anyway, the report continues, quote, her son was frequently visited by a younger blonde boy named Chris, who she thought lived up the street. She described Chris as being very pleasant, polite, and always having a smile. 
He was younger and smaller than her son. This particular Chris, however, was not the same Chris her son had described to her as the one with the dead mother and uncle living in Atlanta. During the school year, there developed a problem with her son selling candy on the school grounds, so she went to the school to talk with the authorities about this problem. Apparently, he said her son's friend Chris had Clinton selling candy and giving him a percentage of the profits. Miss Bankston was told by her son Clinton that Chris and his uncle were working out of a location at Oglethorpe and Hawthorne. She went up there to talk to the people, but none of them knew of Chris Ward. Later, her son told her that Chris was working out of a golden pantry. Miss Bankston stated, quote, He seemed to be giving me the runaround. The following school year, Clinton started at Clark Central. He told his mother that Chris was in his last year and would play basketball in the afternoon with the guys. He later stated Chris was not in school, but came by anyway. I told Miss Bankston that her son told me on 0817 of 1987 that he had never driven Chris's car, a Trans Am, that they always rode their bikes together. Miss Bankston said her son had told her that he had driven the Trans Am several times, that Chris let him drive the car to get driving experience. Just another quick side note here, this mention of Chris's car is really important because that's one thing that Clinton constantly said about Chris, that he had a fancy Trans Am that he would let Clinton drive. Miss Bankston said she never knew what Chris looked like until he described him to the detectives. When asked by this writer, was there ever a time you, his mother, thought there was no Chris, Miss Bankston answered, yes. Police reporter Wayne Ford recalls just how surprised and likely relieved people in Athens were to learn of an arrest. Then they made an arrest so quickly. Had they not made that arrest so quickly, you know, this would have been a city that would have been cloaked in fear because, you know, you've got a killing on one side of town and now you've got a killing on the other side of town and you've got five homicides. Mm-hmm. You know, you can imagine what the city would have been like. But the arrest that came so quickly, I think that, um, that, that set that aside. Locals also recall breathing that sigh of relief that the nightmare and uncertainty regarding who killed the Suttons and the three women was finally over. But they were more shocked by who had been arrested. I didn't understand why he would choose an innocent couple or you know like a you know older couple and and then young women and you know right um i didn't understand that i i i remember just feeling shock that it would be someone that close to us um you know i think at that time i want to say the whole, the entire population of Clark Central was about 1,200 students, mm-hmm. you know, over the four classes, and that's that's not that big, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Um, so just the the sense that somebody who walked the same halls and you recognize, I mean, I I didn't know him personally, but I you know I knew who people were talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, that was scary. When we come back, we'll examine more about who Clinton Bankston really was, and we'll hear from his attorney, Mr. Ed Tolley, who was tasked with defending a teenager who committed murders in the most unthinkable ways. Was there any defense at all? We'll be right back. This breaking news story has just been reported to Classic City Crime by our real estate insider who goes by the alias El Reno. A scary monster named Low Inventory has terrorized local real estate buyers and investors for the past few months and has created a local frenzy. Fortunately, a bald-headed realty hero has arrived and saved our fair city. When Low Inventory was defeated, all it could say was... I would have gotten away with it if it wasn't for meddling Team Rain. For more information, visit reignsold.com. And thanks to Rain and his team for being a sponsor. Classic City Crime.
To understand the gravity of what happened here, I think it's really important to hear a little bit more about Clinton Bankston. I've told you he was just 15 at the time of the first murders and 16 at the time of the Cars Hill murders. Bankston had dropped out of high school in the ninth grade and was a very small young man. In fact, we're going to share just one photo of him on social media out of respect for the victims, and it's a photo of him arriving to court. I encourage you all to look at it because it really shows just how sad, at least to me, this case is all around, from the victims being lost to who ultimately was held responsible. Police interviewed many of Clinton Bankston's classmates and teachers from the past. Of note, his fifth grade teacher said that he was a very quiet and shy student who would only participate when he was called on. She stated he often seemed to stare off into space unless he was brought back to reality. The teacher also says in her statement that she recalls him learning just a step behind the rest of the class, often requiring remedial help with reading. Other reports from the newspaper and from classmates, friends, and family say that Clinton was really, by all accounts, very polite and very neat and very quiet. Wayne Ford's reporting at the time seems to fit this narrative, too, when he wrote, quote, Bankston kept his locker meticulously clean, and when police searched his room, they found clothing hanging neatly in the closets. Wayne goes on to quote one of Clinton's teachers as saying, quote, If he knocked on my door... I'd probably let him in. In fact, after Bankston was arrested, a woman saw his photo in the paper and called police. She, too, had encountered Clinton Bankston, who said, at the time, he was looking for Chris. She, fortunately, did not let him in. Now, these accounts may be very small, but they are hardly what you would imagine from a teen accused of brutally murdering five people, or at least that's what I thought. I want to know what flipped that switch? What can take you from being a quiet high school dropout, seemingly not harming anyone, to killing five people? Well, there were two men that were tasked with figuring that out. One, former district attorney Harry Gordon, and two, local defense attorney Ed Tolley, who was appointed to the case. Harry and Ed, obviously, had much different outlooks on the case. Harry and the DA's office had been tasked with trying the case and asked for the death penalty, charging the young man with five counts of capital murder. I figured he would plead guilty because I figured he was smart enough, but he was dumb as hell because what would cause him to get in a vehicle right after he killed the people and ride all over Athens and park it in front of the, the particular apartment complex and if he's misses something, you know, I mean, there's no question about it. Oh, yeah, yeah. But, you know, you've studied them probably more than I have. You know, psychopaths and all those kind of people, they don't think like that. They think it just everything falls right around them, and they're not going to get on you if they think about getting caught or anything. Mm-hmm. But he was, you could, I could sense that he was, and I wasn't ever that nice to him, you know, when I said, I said, you know, I don't care whether you say anything else or not, but I was having an interview of him, and of course they lawyered up, but he did, and kind of stopped all that stuff. But, you know, I just didn't, I'm not saying I didn't go by the law. I went by the law, but I just didn't take a lot of crap off of because it, it just, that's what's wrong now. We take too much crap off of people like that, but, you know, it's, they just, uh, we, we had him. And then, of course, we got it prepared semi for trial, but the main we had what we call an arraignment day, which you have in all cases. And of course, he pled not guilty. And then I was going to, if I could show that it was heinous enough to ask for the death penalty, which I could. Mm-hmm. Then we got a, I asked for the death penalty, but it was futile in Athens. Uh, I tried, I asked for the death penalty on a good many cases if I thought the facts were there on, and he was there. Mm-hmm. But I don't think you could have a man come into Athens, shoot 40 people, and they wouldn't give the death penalty. They just won't do it or didn't do it. Sometimes I think it's appropriate. Now, this death penalty situation really caused a moral dilemma for attorney Ed Tolley. It's one that actually led him to the Supreme Court 
Here's Ed talking about that. I was appointed by Chief Judge Gaines almost immediately. And I believe I probably appeared at the at the original uh, preliminary hearing because, of course, he was denied a bond. Um, and so I was there from the beginning. I, I went out to the old Clark County Jail and interviewed him and uh, left with the impression that he was very mentally ill. Um, at that point, I'd done so many death penalty cases, I sort of had a routine about what I wanted to look for because you had to combine not only the legal defense of the case, but you had to combine it with sort of the social issues in the case in order to keep the defendant alive. And so the first thing I always did was I got school records for every defendant that I represented because they normally would have some psychological information or psychiatric information. And indeed, in the case of uh, Mr. Bankston, um, there were mental health issues from first grade on. There was behavioral issues from first grade on. You know, I think I told you that my, my wife actually taught him in the first grade and referred, made a referral to the Rutland Center, which was for children that were having psychological difficulties or psychiatric difficulties, but the district deemed him too young for such a service because he was only five or six. And and I get that. I mean, I was once president of the school board, so I get where you have to draw the line. Maybe that's too early, but she recognized, she was a very experienced public school teacher, and she recognized that there was something going on with this child. And, of course, you know, later on, he he's just sort of passed along through the school system and eventually just drops out of Clark Central, uh, never completed his high school education. So, you know, those issues came to fruition. Well, I think the shocking part of all this is that Clinton, you have to remember, at 15, he's a lot different person. He's 40-something years old now. At, at 15, he, he seemed pretty docile. Um, and and I, I saw where his half-brother made comments that, you know, Clinton wouldn't even pick up a knife. Well, um, obviously the evidence says otherwise. And the real question is what in the world it triggered such an angry response. Um, it wouldn't take much for him to overcome an old lady, which is the first victim in the Sutton killing. Um, so there's something else, obviously, that was going on with him, which I recognize. I, I, as soon as I interviewed him the first time, I knew he was mentally ill. I just didn't know how bad it was. So uh, something triggered that anger. And I think that extreme anger, the way that uh, the, the violence of the way that killing occurred is, had a lot to do with people trying to find a motivation such as somebody killed his daddy. Somebody, everybody was looking for a motivation that how does a 15-year-old get that angry? And I just don't know the answer to that. I just know that it was. I had to ask Harry regarding Clinton's age and mental stability at the time of the crime, did he ever have any moral dilemma with asking for the death penalty? Here's what he said about that. Well, I mean, that was consideration, but I didn't, I, I'd seen enough in my lifetime that a 15 or 14 year old, while it was not that plentiful, but they would, they think like a killer and they are a killer. They, and you, but you know, as a rule, it, you don't really see that too much right. back then. Now it's different. Now they took it up. You can take certain cases up while the while the case in Maine is 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 a pending, mm -hmm. and that was one of them. in the Supreme Court ruled that that due to the age of him, when especially when you. I guess the first crime he committed, he was under that magic age, and so they right. wouldn't let us do it. And we and we established law, and you know, that's, I think it's still the law. You know, was, I don't think they're not going to change it. But and then that just kind of took the the fire out of it because if it, he deserved it to go ahead and be put up, because you just think about he'll never get out unless he escapes. He, he just can't. I mean, they, I don't care how liberal they may get, they're not going to turn somebody 
like that loose because of his background mm -hmm. uh, do that. So, you know, it's, it's two or three ways of looking at that, you know, but that, you know, kill somebody like that. And it's really, it's really hard to believe. And it's really, it's, it creates you to have a help, mm -hmm. you know, have a, a, a feel bad that you want to really get somebody that bad, you know. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I have had the death penalty. I did it out in Watkinsville. That's a better way. But the only reason they convicted him down there and gave him oh, the lecture, he said, well, if you convict me, I'm ready to go to lecture. I said, okay, thank you. We'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, once you found out that the death penalty was off the table, what happened then with the well, proceedings? Well, they... Uh, we continued to arraign him or he was already arraigned and then at some point in time not too far from that date he was he entered a plea of guilty so with a da's office seeking the death penalty and seeking then life in prison ed had quite the task for him right well here's our chat regarding the life and the acts of quentin bankston do you think there was ever a question for you, for the community or the state, about whether or not he was actually responsible for those crimes? Or do you think everything well, was pretty overwhelming? Well, you know, people confuse the issue. Under Georgia law, uh, insanity is defined as basically the inability to comprehend your act. And the way the state normally comes in to refute that is through the aspects of planning or even during the crime itself where you uh, maybe don't know what you're doing when it starts and then you all of a sudden you realize what you've done and so you start to plan to cover it up. So, you know, it's been said that most people that commit violent crimes have some form of mental illness, but you can't declare all of those people not guilty by reason of insanity and and declare that they don't know the difference between right and wrong, which is the legal test, because if you did that, there would never be a violent criminal in jail. Does that make sense? So a lot of violent criminals do have mental health problems. A lot of criminals have mental health problems, but in order to meet the test of insanity, you have to be able to establish that the defendant did not know the difference between right and wrong. Clinton was questionable. I mean, he was uh, seemed to me to be in and out uh, of reality. Um, and of course, due to his age, just having the, just the fact that he just killed two people would certainly cause him to shut down or to not deal with the reality he was facing. I mean, he made up or he had an imaginary friend. I think it was Clyde or something Chris. like that. Chris. Yeah. He had an imaginary friend and most people thought that was really bullshit, but I actually talked to him, excuse my language, I, I actually talked to him uh, in the cell where he described Chris and where Chris came from and those type of things. And so uh, it, it, he may have been making it all up or it may be that he actually believed it. I don't know that anybody will ever know for sure. The police weren't as sophisticated in those days. I mean, one of the most obvious things is that the perpetrator's right there and watching them, which is kind of, yeah, which is kind of standard investigative procedure now as to if there's an arson or a murder, they'll, first thing they do is videotape the crowd because the chances are nine out of ten the perpetrator's in that crowd somewhere. So Cars Hill, you know, several months went by and the community settled down. People were still very concerned but and they wanted the case solved but nobody really i think people sort of got to the conclusion that it was just a random crime which by the way is what the public fears the most is random crime right. and so uh after several months goes by then cars hill occurs and um uh, there's no way to overstate the tragedy of cars hill if it's possible to outweigh the tragedy of the Sutton killing, it happened on Cars Hill. What does Attorney Tolley decide is, is the route here to defend? 
Mr. Bankston, and I guess number one for you would be preserving his life at that age and the state seeking the death penalty on someone so young. Yeah, I'd never been confronted with that, although I knew the Supreme Court of the United States had wrestled with it. Um, um, you know, I first thing I did was just try to evaluate the situation, and as has happened to me in, in other cases, I had a murder case a few years ago, and um, as soon as I sat down and talked to the man, I realized he had dementia. The police just assumed he was being a wise ass and, you know, didn't want to believe him, but he had dementia, and it turned out that was the case. Uh, so in Clinton's, and, and, you know, I learned from Clinton as to not jump to any conclusions, but when I first met with Clinton, it was pretty obvious to me that he had mental health issues. I didn't know how deep they were at that point. We later did get an expert uh, or two, uh, but, you know, so my first my first thought was to, control the case um, and then my second thought and I always do this is to look at the law he's 15 and then he's 16 when the second murders occur and the, the question is under Georgia law could you execute someone who is 15 and 16 at the time of the commission of the crime and um, you know later people ask well why didn't you ask for it to be returned to juvenile court well that under the old juvenile code, that would have been a useless act. Um, but more importantly, um, the ability to deal with someone with this level of uh, illness was just not, not there. But I, I looked at the law and I concluded that there was uh, uh, an inconsistency in the law because the Supreme Court of the United States had ruled that you could only execute someone if there was a homicide. And in, in the uh, process of rewriting the statutes, because it was the Coker case in Georgia where the law was declared unconstitutional, that you could only execute someone that took a life. Um, so the legislature, as they often do, hurried up to write statutes to fix that problem. And in, in, in doing so, they left out part of the original juvenile statute, left in part of the old juvenile statute, and then they wrote a death penalty law, uh, which we call the Uniform Appell Appellate Procedure, which is really a misnomer, but it's a uniform death penalty procedure. And so they were inconsistent, and, and I recognized that. And then I did... I'm an old timer, so I keep all the uh, state. I, I keep all the Georgia laws. Now the Georgia Code is published by a publishing company with annotations. The original Georgia laws exist as the original Georgia laws, and I got curious and started looking at them and realized that there was just an inconsistency. So um, I filed a motion to bar the imposition of the death penalty, and the the judge was very smart. I've probably told you that before but he just he just said these weren't his words but the but he basically said this dog's not going to hunt and I said well you, we're talking about executing a child you've got to give me the opportunity to at least take it to the Georgia Supreme Court so he ruled against me granted a certificate of immediate review and the Supreme Court took it and um, of course that decision Bankston versus State was decided in uh, 1988 killings were in 87 it didn't really take them long they, they went right to it the opinion was about chief justice marshall who was from south georgia probably the last justice in the world that people thought would rule this way but he wrote the opinion for the court he was a tough guy um but you know cutting to the chase the supreme court applied what's called the rule of lenity you had one statute that said he could be executed basically or and the other said he couldn't so the defendant gets the benefit of the doubt and it was a winner once that decision came back it enabled me to negotiate with harry we had a new guilty but mentally ill law that uh, because the evidence was overwhelming i i know that clinton's family and i understand have disputed that he could have possibly been the killer i i understand i you know, it's his family. 
but the evidence was overwhelming. They caught him, you know, with the car from the car seal case, uh, blood in it, blood on him. They they uh, got um, the stolen Sutton property from him. And he was living with a half brother at that time. I'm actually surprised they didn't. I mean, it was up to them, but they decided not to charge the half brother. I'm not sure why, but all of the stuff was there, and it was an overwhelming. And plus, he admitted it. I mean, he would go back and forth between saying that he did it and claiming that this imaginary friend did it. He would just flip-flop back and forth or that his imaginary friend made him do it. So, um, you know, it was, to me, saving his life was the the win, the legal win. I'm sure that people in the community would disagree that's a win, but it was certainly a legal win. Um, And... um, uh, from there, the decision of what to do, there was not going to be a not guilty verdict. It just wasn't going to happen. And, you know, I don't know that you're aware, but he did challenge his conviction. Yes. Uh, and the, the Georgia Supreme Court uh, once again affirmed the case. Um, it's interesting because he's not educated, but he's been in prison a long time. I read the brief. Uh, Brian Patterson, who was then the chief assistant district attorney, responded on behalf of the state. And um, the brief was pretty well written by the by Bankston, which leads me to think somebody wrote it for him. <laughs> but maybe not. Maybe he's, after all these years in prison, educated himself. You know, there was another aspect to this case. After we after the plea that day, Judge Gaines called him. What was the ultimate guilty? Guilty but mentally ill to all five counts. Um Judge Gaines called us back to his office, Harry Gordon, Gary Brown, and myself. There were just the four of us in there. And um, the judge asked me, he said, where, where, do you, where do you think he should be put in terms of confinement? And I said, well, I, I think that he uh, will need to be put in a high-security facility, at least until they get a handle on his mental health issues. But that is not what they did. In fact, the judge himself called the director of the Department of Corrections for the state of Georgia and recommended uh, high security for this inmate. But instead, they put him in the youthful detention center up in uh, Buford. Uh, and he made us, after a while, he made a significant effort to escape, but they caught him. Um, you know, the description. They asked me what I thought, and what I thought was that he was very much like an educated house cat. I mean, he was smart enough to be calm, to control himself, and wait for his moment, which was some indication that he may not have been insane. I don't know. But he did, he did against advice. Or they did put him in a place against advice of the people that knew the case best. But now I think he's down there in Dooley, which I think is maximum security. I do want to pop in here quickly and say that rumbling you keep hearing, well, that was the weather the day that I went to talk to Ed Tolley. Thundering, lightning, raining, perhaps a dreary, ominous setting for exactly the conversation we're having right now about how tragic this case was for everyone. I want you to listen to what Ed says about the reality of this situation regarding the death penalty and the case as a whole. I also ask him about retribution versus rehabilitation and the criminal justice debate we continue to have here in the United States of America. If I recall correctly, and I think I do, in 1988, Georgia still had the electric chair. So you you have to start with the visual. You know, and the visual is that I'm going to take a little boy, which he was. He was a little boy. Uh, despite what he had done, wherever that rage came from, it would take a lot smarter person than me to figure it out. But strapping a little boy into the electric chair didn't seem to me to be the right way for the state of Georgia to go. I just, I couldn't visualize it. Now, if it was my family that was murdered in this way, retribution would be first and foremost on my mind. I can certainly understand why people would feel that way. I probably would myself. But on the bigger picture, my responsibility as his lawyer, of course, is not to 
is to do all I could. But on the bigger picture, what I saw was the state of Georgia um, executing a child in the electric chair. And um, it just didn't seem right to me. Um, so, the you know, the Atlanta Journal, that's, that's, that's the Atlanta Journal article right there. Um, the Atlanta Journal agreed with me for whatever that was worth. <laughs> But uh, I think Georgia's probably, now that they've done away with the electric chair and they, um, there's a brand new decision out of the Georgia Supreme Court, which said that, in fact, it's right here. It has nothing to do with why you're coming in here, but it says uh, life without the possibility of parole as a sentence for juveniles is constitutionally acceptable. So the state of Georgia has found a way to deal with it. The Supreme Court of Georgia on March 15, 2021, has agreed that Georgia's done it the right way. So in that case, it was another youth who committed um, terrible murders. And the court said, well, under those unique circumstances, life without parole is appropriate. So um, had, you know, essentially that is what happened with Clinton. You know, I did it through the courts instead of judicially, but I mean, uh, legislatively, but it had the same effect. You know, it's a, drawing the line between rehabilitation, retribution is a long time debate that none of us are going to have the right answer to. I would say this there are people who can be rehabilitated, um, typically. People who commit murders as a result of uh, emotional loss of emotional uh, control typically are pretty good candidates for parole down the road. Um, people who commit murders under the auspices of armed robbery or who um, uh, have such mental problems that they're not likely to be rehabilitatable, if that's a word. Um, it, is. it is now. Uh, I can understand why life without parole is appropriate. Of course, there were racial implications that could have happened with this case, too. You had the state seeking the death penalty of a young black man. Ed recognized that. It's why he fought all the way to the Georgia Supreme Court to change the law. He also says he enlisted the help of some local heroes to make sure that the community was kept informed about what really happened and why. At the time this occurred, the community was so first frightened and then angry that I, and not knowing what the Supreme Court was going to do with my case, um, I marshaled the assistance of local ministers. And um, I had a meeting right here in this office won't name them, I don't want to embarrass them, but I had both black and white ministers, and I said, look, you guys, we're talking about electrocuting a 15-year-old or 16-year-old in this community, um, and I need you guys to keep your congregations calm. I need you guys to encourage people to serve on this jury if we get that far. And um, um, most of them went back to their congregation and preached... Uh, calmness, patience, and just have faith in the system, and didn't ever have to cash that card in because of what the Supreme Court did, but I was very, very grateful, and it happened more than one time that I was able to get the help of local ministers involved, but, you know, yeah, it was important, because we were a much smaller town then. Yeah. What about race? In this case, do you think that if he had been white, that things might have been different in regards to how the legal system responded? Or do you think there was a race element to this at all in regards to Bankston himself? Well, the obvious is that Bankston was African-American and the victims were all white. But um, the what drove the district attorney's request for the death sentence was the crime itself, not the color of the skin of the defendant. Um but I was concerned enough about it that I didn't want to see a mini race war in my own community. And that had a lot to do with why I talked to all the ministers. I uh, probably had seven or eight here. There wasn't everybody in town, but 
<clears throat> they were some of the leaders in the community. I just didn't want to see it go that way because, you know, I think this crime occurred because Clinton was mentally ill. Maybe there are other issues, um, but it had nothing to do with race. There, there are, again, these urban rumors we talked about. There are people that thought he killed them because they were white. I don't really think that. You've heard a lot in this episode, and you're going to be learning a lot more. Not only are we going to do a reading of that full interview transcript, but we're also going to have our own psychological experts returning to the podcast to help us dissect more about what could have possibly gone wrong in Clinton's life. What could have possibly led him to do this? Could Chris really have existed? And most importantly, how can our criminal justice system prevent our kids from ever reaching this place of peril and resorting to murder in the first place? After all, you've heard it, Clinton was in search of money and some vehicles. And it seems he planned to take care of people with that money. You see, a series of notes were actually found in Clinton Bankston's possession that police contend are him laying out what he would do with the money he collected from stealing and the crimes. And what he wrote might not be what you think. In several different letters, Clinton says he's going to pay for his family's bills, that he's going to finally get them adequate beds to sleep on, that he's going to buy his grandmother and mother each a $300,000 house, and that no one, no one, would ever be alone. All of this and more next week on Classic City Crime. I'm Cameron J. Classic City Crime is hosted by me, Cameron J, co-produced and designed by Kyle Kazaya. Visit us online at ClassicCityCrime.com and be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Classic City Crime. Special shout out to Elizabeth Russo, our research assistant who always helps us out when we need it. And special thanks again to EHDH Law and Team Rain Real Estate. Hope you all have a great week. <laughs>